Hi, Richard. How are you doing? <laughs> Very well. That's so nice to be in the hot seat. I, I mean, this is, I'm so excited to be interviewing you about these iconic records. Um, this one particularly is like, you know, very famous and uh, I'm a little starstruck. <laughs> so um, I'd love to know about your involvement with Grace Jones's Slave to the Rhythm. Why did Trevor Horn call you for this gig? Well, yes, Trevor Horn, I actually first met Trevor Horn. I used him as a bass player on a session in the <laughs> 70s. Uh, no way. Well, he's a great bass player and and uh, very good musician and he played a lot of you know the typical kind of general business gigs that we all play you know uh weddings bar mitzvahs funerals northern clubs you know he's played all those things so yeah. i had heard about him and in fact i'd heard that he was uh starting out as a producer from a friend of mine uh who i was working with and and uh, he said oh yeah this guy's a great bass player in fact, it was uh, my friend Steve Rowland, who's an American producer. So mm -hmm. I hired him for a gig that Lawrence Juber was actually, uh, I hired him to play guitar on it. It was for a French pop artist. And Trevor came in, you know, and I gave him the part and he looked at it and he read it and he was great, you know. So that was the first time I met him. Later on, of course, when he had started making a lot of hits, uh, his go-to arranger was, of course, Ann Dudley. Now, uh, a lot of people know that Ann Dudley is not only a great arranger and composer and keyboard player, and actually Trevor had met her when he was doing some of those ordinary gigs, you know, and he would hire somebody to come and play at the Hammersmith Palais, and he needed a keyboard player, and she showed up, and you know, she's she's quite good, and she's really good, and so then he <laughs> when he started uh, needing arranging. Uh, he would he would ask her to do it, and of course she did a great job. But sometimes I'm glad to say Ann Dudley would catch a cold or go on holiday, and and in the early days when she would do that, he for some reason he called me up, and that was the good thing. And the first the first record I did for him was the ABC album, a record called Date Stamp. We did that, and then I also did something for an artist called Anne Pigal for him, who was a, a French, very interesting artist. Uh, and, and we did an amazing track live in the studio with the orchestra, and Gary Husband played very interesting drums on it, and it was fascinating. So, so then I guess Anne got sick or something again and couldn't do the Grace Jones record. And so that's why Trevor called me. I bet she's kicking herself up. Huh? <laughs> uh, she did enough hits. She did enough hits. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what was the process of working with him like? Well, of course, I, I already knew what he was like in the studio, but on this one, it was kind of different. In fact, he called me and said, you better come down and hear what we're doing. And he told me about the whole background of how it came about for him. Um, Chris Blackwell of Island Records uh, had Grace Jones under contract for one more single. That was it, one single. And he thought, well, might as well go out with a bang. Let's let's get Trevor to do it. And Trevor had this song that, in fact, he was going to use for Frankie Goes to Hollywood, uh, which wow. had been written by uh, Bruce Woolley. Uh, great songwriter and his his songwriting partner at the time, uh, uh, Steve Stephen Darlow, and uh, 
they had this song, but he decided, okay, if I'm going to do Grace Jones, well, let's use it for her. And if you remember those times, remixes. I don't were, personally, but. Well, I know you don't. <laughs> way before your time. In the 80s, you were barely a, a glimmer in, in the inventor's eye. But, but uh, yeah, the, well, in those days, remixes became a thing and technology right. was developing very, very quickly. And so uh, he had had a lot of success with Frankie Goes to Hollywood remixes. And, you know, he said to me that it was a great way of getting a lot more money out of making one record. So they'd make the record yeah. and they'd make money with that. And then they'd make on each one of the remixes, they sold just as many records. And he said the whole thing of it was to, you know, go crazy and do do wilder and wilder remixes so that they were more and more, the audience was getting something new for their money. So then when it came to this one, they started doing the song and uh, Trevor Horn was working with Steve Lipson, who is also a brilliant engineer, a brilliant- I, I, I've worked with him actually as well, because uh, we ended up doing a single together for the, with All Angels. So I have, I have had the pleasure of working with him. Yes, indeed, something. indeed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They were working together as a kind of a production duo, I would say. Right. And I must say that when I came into the studio and I heard what they were doing, they said, well, we're doing this song, but we've got 16 versions of it. And I said, what? let's hear what you've got and he said well and he played me many of the versions and he said these are the two that we'd like you to work on uh because we we hear that you could uh, do some orchestra on this and uh they're they're a bit over the top and that's why we called you so uh, i listened to them and they were the main single version and also there's another version on there i think it's called jones the rhythm uh, it's a, it, it, it wasn't called that at the time. It was called industrial version because it's got a lot of people hitting things and thong, 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 that kind of thing going on. So they called it the industrial version. He said, go away. And I said, well, what's, what are you thinking of when you say orchestra? And he said, what do you want? I want it big. I want it gigantic. I want it over the top. Go for it. And I said, well, do you want me to tell you what I, no. Just go do it, and and uh, then we'll have a talk. When you've done the arrangements, you can come and we can have a meeting, and I can look over what you've done before we record it. So I said, great. Now, usually, I must say, most producers don't ask to see the score, and but I thought, well, Trevor's a musician. That's perfectly fine with me. And I was rather looking forward to going over it with him. Um, so he called me down, and he said, you know, come down to the studio right now. And it was actually the day before we were meant to record, which I, you know, he left it pretty late. And yeah. I, when I got there, I realized why he said, he said, come down, but bring your guitar. And I thought, hmm, that doesn't bode well. I'm wondering what's going on. And so I walked in the studio and there is Bruce Woolley, Andy Richards, the keyboard player, uh, Steve Lipson sitting at the Fairlight. They were each sitting at different uh, Dawes. Uh, and, and then Trevor was sitting there, I believe it or not, with an SPX drum machine programming stuff in a kind of a yeah. crazy way. And they, 
they said, get your guitar out. And Trevor said to me, there's something wrong with the groove. And I said, something wrong with the groove. Now, this is talking about the main single version. And I said, man, this is one of the best grooves I've ever heard in my life. And you're telling, <laughs> well, there's something. We're just trying some new things. So I said, uh -oh. okay. Well, that was around six o'clock in the evening that I got there. Wow. And at four in the morning, I said to Trevor, I've got an 85 piece orchestra showing up at Angel Studios at, you know, for a 10 o'clock session. I'm going to go home. I'm going to take a shower, have some breakfast, and then I'm going to go to the studio. And you guys do whatever you want, but I, I, I can't this is all I can do. And so I, I left. So I arrived at the studio the next morning at Angel because we needed someplace big to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I love and as well. and I there is it. Trevor. Now, I know that none of them had slept all night, but there's Trevor looking as if he just had a six month holiday in Barbados. So, and, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed saying, wow. Oh, hi, Rich. You know, he was already there. And he says, uh, well, you know something? After all, you were right. There was nothing wrong with the group, but it was really fun trying those things, wasn't it? <laughs> and yeah. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so that was that was that was Real the thing. actual recording side of it. Um, as far as actually, th there were some other really interesting things about the way it was recorded. Um, first of all, they had gone to Washington, I believe it was, to record the actual musicians who originally played on the, the song Money to get this sort of groove that they were looking for, which was this kind of go-go beat thing. Okay. And they had recorded a lot of different musicians playing different things. But after they got all that back, they then sampled what they regarded as the best four bars of groove the best drum fills the big because they recorded like 20 minutes of them playing the song or something like that yeah. and then they just stuck it all together in the fairlight because they had this digital technology that nobody had ever had before this is 1985 wow, uh, yeah yes as i say before yeah. you were born but <laughs> nevertheless uh so that's how they put the track together and that's maybe in a way why it sounds so amazingly tight and otherworldly because it was all put together but it's real people playing and i believe steve lifson actually played the bass uh and the the great and very lamented jj bell who was a dear friend of mine and in my opinion the greatest rhythm guitar player who ever lived just an amazing guy he played uh, rhythm guitar on it and it's very distinctive what he did on it and uh so that was the track and of the main version and then on the other version i went completely bonkers driller killer with this kind of i wrote a uh, a roman sounding thing because he, he, the if you listen to the lyrics you know axe to wood in ancient times i got this so i i made the brass sound like it was roman now nobody knows what roman music sounds like uh, you know it's, it's very interesting that there's no written music from well there's written music, but nobody can play it 
so, so nobody really knows what it sounded like. And yep. so we approximated as being this thing, which is all played in fourths and fifths and that kind yeah. of, so, so that's what I did. Imagine. And then I had this interesting little melody that went on and the, the choir singing it and that's all in fifths. And it was, it was Amazing. kind of fun to do. And I just amazing. had, you know, a fantastic to, band. Yeah, well, what a, what an amazing thing to play with to have that at your disposal. I mean, yes. you you were you were working at the at the same time. You you were working, I think you said, with another female artist, Dusty Springfield. Well, yes, at the same and, time as this, yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons why doing this it was so hectic because when I came to the session to supposedly show my score to. To Trevor, which, by the way, I never got a chance to show him. He said, well, I'll just see you in the morning. Uh, but but uh, I had just come from mixing uh, Dusty Springfield's record because I had what I guess anybody would call a dream gig producing a song for Dusty Springfield. And that that was pretty yeah. mind blowing. Of course, yeah. her voice is not only iconic for most people, but for me, it's just part of my entire growing up and the look of love and it's just it's so emotional so yeah. to actually meet her and work with her mm -hmm. um there were some things that of course i didn't know her as a person i just knew her as a voice and then i i found out some things that i i was amazed at number one how incredibly brilliant she was about music i mean she knew so much about all of the great iconic singers in R&B, soul, whatever. She knew the whole history of it and she would talk about it with, with great love and affection. And she really knew what she was talking about. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of it was that I have never ever worked with an artist who was so insecure in my life. I mean, really? first of all, wow. she thought that she thought that everything she was singing was crap. Uh, she wanted her headphones so loud that I, I recorded her at uh, CBS Studios. And it's a huge room, you know, and, and she kept asking for, the, her, her, for her voice to be louder and louder. She wanted the whole thing, the, the track, I think, the whole track louder and louder. And, and the engineer said to me, this is just ridiculous. It must be deafening. You better go in there and check it out. So I went in and all I was hearing from her headphones as I walked into the studio and it's about, it was about 50 feet to get to where she was in the studio. All I was hearing was <laughs> So wow. I was it and I, and I said, Dusty, do you, do you really need it that loud? She said, oh yeah, I need it to be completely. And I said, but how can you hear anything? She said, I, it's fine. It's the way I always work. And, and interestingly, when I later interviewed Jerry Wexler, which was, of course, an incredible pleasure, and you can hear that interview on Radio Richard. Um, <laughs> I just gave myself a plug. He told me the same thing, with, with, that mm -hmm. she was very insecure and that she was very, very uh, insecure about her vocals and wanted the headphones so loud. So that was an interesting thing. But of course, the end result was great. And it was a song called uh like butterflies and uh it was i can't remember who wrote it now but it was done somehow i don't know how again but i got asked to to uh, produce it which was great fun and 
Um, lovely thing. But I, you're, you're I remember, very modest. You're very modest. <laughs> I, re I remember her with great, great affection. Mm. Wow, wonderful. How amazing to work with her. Yeah, she's a real idol of mine as well. I mean, wow. So, um, yeah, I mean, so what was Grace like out of interest? Well, it's interesting that you say that, Daisy, <laughs> my dear. Uh, I never met Grace. <laughs> and the reason I never really? met Grace was because on most of Trevor Horn's productions in those days, I don't know about thereafter, but Trevor didn't want to have the, the artist in the studio any more than he absolutely needed them. So he'd get their vocal and then mm. goodbye, and they, he they would never see him again until the record was absolutely finished. And I remember when we were in the studio together, there were often times when people from various bands who had been signed to ZTT, he would get a call to the studio, oh, this artist is here, this artist is here. And Trevor, they, they, they say they know you're in the studio and they're coming in, so I can't stop them. Trevor hid underneath the desk at Sarm Studio and, and said, tell oh him I'm God. not here, tell him I'm not here. So he, he, he literally got underneath the desk and we all said, oh, he's just gone out to lunch. He might be back in a couple hours. And, wow. and, and we did that often. Yeah. Sometimes Isn't there was a little- Why did he, well, what was our reason, do you think? He, he didn't want to be hassled by artists. He, he didn't feel that the artist was an essential part of the, uh, the process once they had done their vocals. You know, they've done oh. their bit, now I'll do mine. And, and you know, let's face it, after having made all those hits, he sort of knew what he was talking about. I, you know, yeah. a lot of people have described various crazy things like this that Trevor did, but <laughs> I've got to tell you, um, his, his taste and his sense of adventure was what made all of his records great. I mean, he was willing to try anything, which is why we had that crazy night of torture uh, trying different grooves for Slave to the Rhythm. Just because he wanted to try it, he wanted to be free to, be, to create. And, and uh, for that, I, I do agree. On the other hand, with the kinds of budgets you get today, I don't think anyone would be allowed to work like that. Mm, have that kind of luxury. Yeah. Well, it's completely, imagine, imagine mm. being able to go in the studio as he did, and I have to say, as the Beatles did, Mm. And just keep trying stuff, you know? Yeah. Do you think that, that music would be better if we could do that more? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. Uh, Trevor's records are incredible. The Beatles records are incredible. The other yeah. records from various artists who you can think of who've spent a long time doing them are incredible. And, and so yeah. I, I don't, I mean, purely in artistic terms, I don't think artistry should be um, should be conformist. I don't think it should have to conform to anything. Um, I was just mm -hmm. recently this morning talking to Rowena Morgan about how ah. our, how artists are constantly being asked to conform to either their one hit single or to mm -hmm. sound like whoever's you know, in the top five right now. They don't want artists who sound like themselves. I mean, the whole concept of uh, X Factor thing is all about doing covers sounding like X, sounding like Y, mm -hmm. not sounding mm -hmm. like yourself. 
I prefer you sounding like Daisy Shute. And I would never <laughs> ask you to sound like Joni Mitchell or, you know, Reginald Noseworthy or anybody. You know, I, I want you to, I, I want you to be the best you you are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and certainly, I, I think, yeah, as an artist, that's definitely what I strive for. And I, I definitely, but I remember learning, you know, being, being taught to kind of imitate as part of a kind of rite of passage, I guess as a youngster, because I guess when you're learning music for the first time, you have to learn first by listening and imitating it to a sure, certain degree. Sure. But then there's a, there's a point at which you need to find your own identity. It's the famous Clark Terry saying, imitate, assimilate, and then innovate. Yes. So, yes. you know, of course you have to imitate when you're starting out, yes. when you're learning, mm. uh, but, but not when you're in the studio making a Daisy Shoot record. No, <laughs> exactly. And I, if I ever find myself falling into the trap, it's, um, yeah, it's, I, I know it's danger zone. <laughs> but, you know, that, that's that kind of, you're talking about the kind of insecurities you have in the studio. I mean, um, I guess you wouldn't have seen what Grace was like because she had such a, such a personality that I can only imagine what she would be like in the studio. But I don't know if you heard stories or anything. Well, I mean, I, I, if anybody wants to see what Grace Jones was like, just watch the Russell Harty interview that she did on, on, <laughs> on TV where she thought he was insulting her. Boy, right. he hauled off and hit him. No, I mean, I, w I would never want to get in a fight with her. I, mean, I think she's just an incredible artist. Of course, I, I like all of her records and I like the artistic uh, avant-garde attitude of, of the whole thing because an artist isn't just the songs and the voice. The artist mm. is the whole package. It's the image. It's what what kind of what they stand uh, necklace they're wearing. You know wh what type of eye makeup. What type of you know it's it's more than just one thing. So it's a whole mm -hmm. it's a whole thing. And I, I I would have loved to have met her and talked to her. In fact, I'd love to interview her. Uh, yeah. But uh, but there you are. Yeah. But but this is we're, we're talking about we're talking about Grace being unique. You know, I mean, what what do you think makes this particular record so unique well first of all i have to say 1985 the technology that was being developed at that time the kind of uh musical digital instruments and technology that was coming out was a tremendous creative tool and mm -hmm. trevor horn and steve lipson pushed it to its ultimate degree and i always, you know, when I teach production and I teach uh, the sort of history of popular music, I always point to this record as being a record whose production values have never been uh, equaled still. Mm. And, and, and I still talk to engineers and, and various sort of technology people who make records and they say, how the hell did they do that? How did they, what, what is that? They still can't <laughs> quite figure out what it is. Um, to yeah. find out what it is, you'd have to ask Steve Lipson. Uh, but but it, is, it was wonderful and I had tremendous uh, respect for that. And I, I heard it as soon as I walked in the door and listened to these tracks because it yeah. wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just the mixing process where they did all this, it was the whole recording of every instrument was absolutely pristine and beautiful and amazing and unusual. So that's the sound of it makes it interesting. And also the idea that you can get an album which has eight songs 
done in a different way, which is, by the way, arranging. That's all there it is. Go. A remix is just an arrangement. <laughs> yeah. So you have yeah. a perfect example of arranging in these eight songs. And by the way, they're registered as different songs because arranging changes songs very much. And these arrangements are drastically rearranged versions of the songs. And so often, of course, one of the points I make in this book is that arrangers are often, not always, but are often really doing work which is the equivalent of co-writing mm -hmm. because they're changing the song uh, drastically. When, a, when an arranger is given the song Dancing in the Street and mm -hmm. they say, oh, I'm going to write a brass line to bring it in. Well, that's the hook that brings you in the song. That's yeah. important. That is a melody that was not in the song before yeah. the song was written. The songwriters didn't write it. The lyric yeah. writer didn't write it. Paul Reiser, the arranger, wrote it, and he should have gotten a co-writer credit on it. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, so those yeah. are the kinds of points. But, but I think another thing that makes this album, Grace Jones, uh, "Slave to the Rhythm," so unique is that it's a whole album of one song and the creative power of Trevor Horn and Steve Lipson to to create eight different versions. Uh, with an incredible team. And I have to say the team of people that they had, the musicians, uh, Uncle Richard, all the people who came and contributed to it, uh, did an amazing, amazing job to help uh, reach a, a, a vision that was not there originally. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, how was it re recorded? As I meant to ask you, I, you said it was recorded at Sarm. Well, it was recorded uh, and at an Angel. An Angel, yes. The, the, right. the bigger orchestra was at Angel, and then there were yeah. other overdubs that we did at, at, at SARM. Of course, it was all beautifully recorded, but, but uh, yeah. one of the things that was fun about it was that I, I had, I arranged it for a full jazz big band within mm -hmm. an orchestra. So wow. the idea was, was that, and then Guy Barker, again, was playing the trumpet in that thing. And in fact, he played the piccolo. There was a piccolo trumpet part in it somewhere. But anyway, the point is, uh, Guy said to me, Rich, you know, your big band stuff, you've really got to form your own big band. You really have got to do it. And I had known Guy since he was a very, very young man in Nijo. And uh, so I said, well, you know, I'll tell you what, because Guy got a lot of gigs in those days. And I wasn't really in that live scene very much because I was so much in the studio. So I said, okay, guy, look, I'll write the arrangements if you'll get the gigs. He said, deal. And so he got the gigs and I wrote the arrangements. And so that's how that's how my Bandzilla big band right. came came to life. And uh, amazing. And so that's that's how it happened. He got the gigs. So and, got, we got to thank Guy Barker as well for, for encouraging you to begin with with that. Well, uh, yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah he, amazing. He was the guy who actually clicked the the button that made it happen because I would have never done it. I mean, I I enjoyed. I had done some big band charts, and I'd done. I'd have them played by other bands and put put together some rehearsal bands and stuff. But I'd never formed my own band. But at this point, I said, "Okay, let's do it." And in fact, I did my own version of "Slave to the Rhythm" with Banzilla, which was fun. Amazing. Uh, and I sort of <laughs> took it 
out. And, uh, yeah. and then I also did my own version of Breakout, which is another record we'll talk about at some point uh, yeah, that sure. I worked on, which was a big hit. And mm. so, yeah, that was, a, that was a really fun project. And that actually came out of that one session uh, wow. where I recorded the big band for, for uh, Slave to the Rhythm. There you go. Well, that's, that's, that's cool. I didn't know that origin story because obviously I know Bandzilla from being involved in a more recent Yes, version of Benzina, from from, from singing beautifully and incredibly <laughs> on on uh, where is it where is it where is it I've lost it okay well wherever it is <laughs> I wish I had I wish I had something to cross yeah, yeah. <laughs> Daisy sang on tip for a Toreador hear it I loved it thank you very much well I'm very excited to talk to you some more about some other records we've got a couple more coming up the next one will be uh, about Pet Shop Boys, Left to My Own Devices, uh, released in 1988, I believe. That's cool. So uh, that's, that's coming up next. So okay. thank you so much, Richard. Okay. Thanks, Daisy. It was a gas. <laughs> Radio Richard. Like, share, subscribe, even donate. Radio Richard. Be informed. Be amazed. Be inspired.